0: Hello, listeners, and welcome. My name is Dark, and I'm your host for the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast, where we highlight stories written by women and other underrepresented gender identity authors of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. My guest tonight is Karen Hewler, author of literary, dark fantasy, science fiction, and horror short stories and novels. And tonight, she'll be reading a segment from her novel, The Splendid City, a political satire inspired by, well... You'll see. But first, why don't we have a chat with Karen and find out more about her. Welcome, Karen, to the Strong Women's Strange World podcast. I'm so glad you could join us tonight.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, I actually start, well, I've been writing for 40 or 50 years or whatever it is, a long time. And I started out in the literary world, actually. Most of my early publications were all with literary journals, and I found that they sort of were always on the edge of reality, but I found that the stories I liked the most were farther over on the edge of reality, and even though I had read science fiction through my 20s as my go-to, I sort of then went into mysteries and literary, I've always been reading literary. But I rediscovered science fiction about 15, 20 years ago. And I realized that uh, that world might be the world that I was heading towards anyway. So I started uh, doing my research, seeing what magazines were out there. And I started getting publications in uh, science fiction, fantasy magazines, in addition to literary. And for the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, I've been writing more and more science fiction slash fantasy than literary. But I do feel I'm in both worlds. I'm just more visibly in science fiction and fantasy than I am now. I don't really want to get rid of my literary roots, um, but my tendency is to go a little dark and strange and weird and quirky, that kind of thing.
0: Nothing wrong with that at all.
1: Certainly not. That's what I like to read, so it makes sense.
0: So the piece that you'll be reading for us tonight is the f- about 10 minutes into the first chapter of your new book, The Splendid City. Yes. And I was reading that and it kind of caught me off guard with a talking cat.
1: There's a story. Well, there are a couple of stories behind this book. One, I don't know if you've heard of or read The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, it's an absolutely stunning Russian novel. Um, again, but the devil comes to Moscow to try and give it the short edition. And he's accompanied by a, a black cat. And the, the edition that came out in the late 60s had a black cat with a bow tie and a gun. And <laughs> I, I've read that book a number of times. I've loved it every single time. But of course, visually, the cover uh, is perhaps the thing that I carried with me the most. And uh, the book, as you might have noticed, is a satire and delves into um, politics a bit, the politics of this strange place called liberty. And I've loved Bulgakov's work so much that I wanted to use the cat. Uh, The cat could also talk in uh, The Master and Margarita. And it actually, in the first couple of drafts, (laughs) Uh, the character, the cat, whose name is Stan. In the first couple of drafts, he was actually named Behemoth. And I sort of realized that, number one, it's an awkward name for an American novel. Um, And I also thought that it's always a question how much you're going to lean on a work that you love and that you're using. So I eventually decided to give him an American name, Stan. But I kept the things I loved about him He's a troublemaker. He's got great lines. He's always doing things that cross over into being either bullying or just snarky. He was just so much fun to write. Uh, So a lot of the book really follows and listens to Stan as he goes about making as much trouble as he can get away with. And then of course there's Eleanor. And I kind of see myself in Eleanor. Her major error, Uh, was her impatience and her acting without thinking. And that I think is something I do quite often. Um, So to a certain extent, I was rehabilitating her and me at the same time. Does she learn to overcome her tendencies to be rash? I don't think I ever did, but maybe she can, (laughs) that kind of thing. I had so much fun writing this book. with Stan and with Eleanor and her learning process. So if you're not having fun with a book, it's kind of hard to continue with it. So I guess that's a statement for all of the books I've written. I had fun with them.
0: (laughs) Nice. Well, let's give it a listen to, and then we'll come back and we'll chat a bit more.
1: Thank you. The Splendid City, Chapter One, Liberty. Betsy Bundaroo was used to seeing cats, but not ones who walked upright or spoke. She was standing at the bus bus stop, reading the notice that said the bus had been canceled permanently. Why, she wondered, why don't they say? But these were the times, indefinite suspensions, removals, reversals, etc. Things suddenly were, and then just as suddenly, were not. The structure is breaking down, she thought, and no surprise there. She felt a sort of grim satisfaction in it. So much had already changed since the election. Why not this? Why should anything work when none of it made sense? The president did not want buses to run anywhere near the palace, and that was necessary, she supposed. She understood. But the larger problem was that the world was going crazy. No one could tolerate anyone who didn't agree with them. It's true, the big black cat said, nodding wisely. Ah she had been muttering again, a bad habit that was growing on her. The cat was wearing a bow tie and fanny pack. I'm finding it very hard to have a reasonable conversation these days. Everyone shouts sound bites and no one shouts facts. I wonder if there are any facts left, she said with a sigh. I mean, everything is endlessly manipulated. If she'd had time, she would have wondered why she was having a conversation with a cat, but right then and there she felt it was best to be polite, because he was such a very large cat, and he sounded irritated. Things would be so much better if there were no internet, the cat said, because it spreads everything too fast. People see crap, believe it, and act on it before there's a chance to respond, and there's never just one response. It branches out he said moodily. Have you heard about those mushrooms whose underground root spreads out for miles in all directions? That's the internet for you. But mushroom roots aren't right or wrong, she said, frowning. I don't think you've quite got the right kind of analogy there. Really? He asked with a nasty, hissing kind of snarl, pulling off his fanny pack and rummaging through it quickly to pull out a gun. Really? He asked again and shot her. She clutched her upper arm. Blood ran through her clothes. The cat put the gun back in his pack and ran off. Eleanor was going to be mad. A happy growl rose in his throat. How was your day? Eleanor asked the cat when he walked in the door. She could see that he was miffed. He was always miffed. I shot someone again, he said, sighing. He had to agree it was becoming a nasty habit. I do regret it. You always regret it. It was very hard not pointing out the cat's failures. She tried to make sure her face was neutral. It wasn't easy. She had pale skin, medium-length brown hair, hazel eyes, and a face that gave away everything. Well, that just tells you about my character. I'm not actually the kind of person who goes around shooting people. And yet you do, she said. Let's consider the circumstances... No doubt they said something to annoy you. What was it? He frowned and shrugged his shoulders. She contradicted my theory about the internet being like that huge mushroom root. Stan, Eleanor said firmly, it's a bad analogy. Now, do you want to shoot me? Stan scowled. I do. Of course he wanted to shoot her. Shooting people made him feel better for a while. And it was certainly true that she could benefit from being put in her place every so often. She was bossy, opinionated. He was the way he was because of her. Why not talk it out instead? You have the power of speech, so why not talk about things instead? Gloria will blame me if you continue to go around shooting people. I never kill them, you know, he said, his hairs rising. Try and be the kind of cat who never shoots them in the first place, she said. You're just drawing attention to yourself. The cat shrugged. Who'll believe a cat shooting a woman anyway? They're a nation of believers here, she said in disgust. Read a newspaper once in a while. Of course, his hands twitched at that, but he only allowed himself one shot a day. They were walking down the street when a bell rang out. A familiar sound in the city, though it roved from district to district around the palace. People stopped and turned, waiting to see the messenger approach. The message could be good or bad. Once a van had stopped a woman and then, then gave her the car that pulled up behind her. Then there was a the time when a bunch of men got out of the van and grabbed a young man, a Latino by the looks of him, and pulled him inside. An older man ran towards the van, but he was too late. They were gone. The messengers were often on the news and were the most popular part of it after the reported disasters in the rest of the country and any attempts to overthrow the republic. Then the weather, updates about the president's latest triumph, and then on to the messengers. People loved the giveaways and ignored the disappearances, which were generally explained as reunions. They were also fond of the whipped cream pies that hit people identified as tourists from the north. They'd better not hit me, Stan muttered. I've got a gun. Eleanor snorted. Everyone here has a gun. My gun is better, he said with satisfaction. Eleanor could see no point in challenging that. Besides, she often carried a can of whipped cream with her in case anyone threw a pie. She might not be able to prevent it, but she was all for revenge. Finally, Stan said, There have been fewer messengers this week. That's a relief. Maybe... I was hoping they'd stop for me and give me a car. You can't drive a car. Why not? She scowled. You're a cat. There were times when she thought that he just couldn't see himself as he was. But really, when had he ever? Which could change at any point, you know. All I have to do is hang in, and all you have to do is learn to be nice. He circled around himself in agitation for a moment. But that's the flaw in my plan, he growled. We're here because you were a jerk, Eleanor snapped. He always did it. He always had to bring things up and bring things up. And yet you're here too, he purred. What could she say? He was right. They were each other's punishment. She couldn't get rid of him until she redeemed herself with Gloria. She hated to admit it, but she was shackled to the cat. I'm here to find out what happened to Daria, she said. Gloria hadn't given him a mission, and she liked to point that out. You know that's not completely true, he said smoothly. Gloria wanted to get rid of you before she heard about Daria. You went too far. You always go too far. She wouldn't dignify that with an answer. She knew perfectly well that she and the cat were bound together until Gloria decided that they'd learned their lessons. Luckily, she was also there to help find a missing witch, and that at least made it seem that Gloria respected her. "'I make the decisions,' she said finally. "'You're in charge of nothing.' "'The cat dropped to the floor in an elegant way and circled around her, pumping his tail up. "'But to continue,' he said, "'I could say with all modesty that I do deserve a car, a convertible. "'Deep blue, I think. "'I suspect the van would decide to take you away instead,' she scoffed. "'And since no one cares what happens to the disappeared, I wouldn't care either.' It wasn't a good look, she thought, saying things like that, but the cat was so annoying. I bet it's some kind of parking problem, the cat said philosophically, like getting towed. They don't tow people, they tow the cars. In other places, yes, but this makes more sense. He got a little jaunty, swaggering and swishing his tail. He was like that, completely indifferent to what happened to others. The bell was getting closer. She was determined to see what it was this time, to see up close. She and the cat had been in the city for three three weeks now, adjusting and observing. Everyone had explanations for everything, but she wasn't going to fall for it. She would keep her New York City smarts for as long as she could. There could hardly be a good explanation for people being taken away. A large tan van with side and rear doors rounded, rounded the corner. There was a cheerful logo on the body, a smiling chicken with a frying pan. How typical, she thought pretending animals were delighted to be killed and cooked. The van began to slow down, and some people stood still watching, their heads swiveling as their anticipation built, others, mostly Latinx, to corners, vanished into stores or up the stairs, and still the van moved along, ringing its merry bell. In another era, it might be a siren, Eleanor thought, but it didn't matter. It was never ignored. Everyone had their eyes on it, and then they could all see where it was heading. A young man turning to stand and face it down, his legs spread out firmly against the ground, his arms crossed, his head high, his eyes relentlessly watching it approach him closer and closer. How fierce he was! She could feel the tension rising in the air. Everyone contributed to it, as if there were a massed beating heart. And then the door's van, and then the van's door opened. Two arms reached out, grabbed him, and he was gone. Ooh, that was good, Stan said. Neat and clean.
0: I cannot get over the attitude of this cat. I love Stan. If you've ever been a cat servant, then you can just visualize the snark and attitude that radiates off this creature. He would be a fearsome creature to behold indeed. So let's continue our chat with Karen. When I was listening to this reading... The first thing that struck me, maybe it's because we are so close to everything that went on in this with the American elections in general over the last seven years or so. Was this story inspired by that, or were there, or did you have this idea before everything that happened?
1: No, this was a direct result of a political situation we were in. The first draft of it, which I liked, was much more blatant, uh, much more obviously, Tied to a certain figure. And even though I liked it, I got a few responses that basically said, You're writing something that's going to expire. This will be over. And do, don't you want to sort of move outside too many references? Uh, to something that is not going to be that relevant sooner or later. And I recognize that that was a very good piece of information. So I went back and made Liberty. Liberty happened as a result of that conversation about being too topical. And Liberty is a place where there's a lot going on. That old Roman expression, give them bread and circuses, really applies to Liberty because it's fun. It's a fun place to be in if you don't care what's happening behind the scenes. Um, There are constant parades. There are nugget throws, showers of nuggets uh, for some reason. There's a a white van that goes called the messenger that goes screaming down the street. And if you're lucky, it will give you, if it picks you up, it will give you a new car or it might just take you away. And the rumor is that they're sent away on a great vacation. Nobody looks behind the rumor. There's a water shortage. The price of water goes up and up. And the president claims that it's because the Easterners stole a river, uh, which everyone accepts because, of course, they hate the Easterners or Northerners, whoever they are. (laughs) So it's a fun place if you don't look behind the curtain. From the evidence in the novel, generally speaking, no one looks behind the curtain. So for me, it's a sort of attractive lie. And uh, having gone through a whole series of lies that got accepted, it, it's just, for me, the perfect statement of how I feel about that situation.
0: Would you be concerned if people saw this book as being political? Is that what you wanted? Or is that far from from what no, you...
1: it's <laughs> a political satire. Uh, or I can see the sun is setting. I'll move over and block it. <laughs> <laughs> There it is again. You know, there's no way around it. It is a political satire. Um, I think I've done a fairly good job of not being too pointed, too nasty, too harsh or anything like that. I don't think it's an offensive book in any way. I think it's more, let's look at the possibilities of how you can make a bad political situation fun to be in. Um, And you can take that as you will.
0: Now, because of the political situation within the book, was it hard finding a publisher?
1: No, it's being released through Angry Robot.
0: Was it difficult in finding a home for it?
1: It was. uh, It took a while. Of course, a lot of time was eaten up by the first draft, which was the one that was too blatant. Finally, Angry Robot liked it, but it wasn't quite right for them. Um, And it was at that point that I rewrote it. And luckily, it worked out very well. They're they're a wonderful publisher to work with. They're terrific. I'm a fairly quirky writer. I'm not for everyone. Uh, when I find publishers who love me, it's, it's thrilling. But I've been writing and getting published for a long time. By the way, I have over 125 stories published, and this is my tenth book. So I managed to get published. Yes, which, which is if you're a writer, whether you're beginning or mid-range or whatever, the magic doesn't happen unless you do your research. So you spend a lot of time finding the place where you fit in. And I'm not your typical, I don't write the typical kinds of things in either the literary or perhaps even the fantasy worlds. I'm a little bit odd. um, And that's just the way I am. You have to write the way you are. So I, I recognize that some of the things that I write will have a hard time, and I can either give up or I can keep trying. And it took a while to find a place that wanted this book, but they really wanted it. So that was worth the effort, definitely.
0: Nice, nice. Now, with this story, what would you like readers to take from it?
1: Is there a moral, you ask? Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> First of all, I want you to have fun. It's a fast, easy, breezy read. Stan the Cat is enormously funny, even though he's not a particularly nice cat or man. He's a a bit of both, but he's a pleasure to follow around and see what he does, stirring up trouble as he does. He loves to eavesdrop, and then he puts twists on the conversations when he forces his way in. So he's just fun. One of the things in terms of topics, there is the whole thing about why would people accept a lie? And the answer is it's entertaining. If you make it entertaining, they're not going to question it. But also there's this whole question of consequences and responsibility, which is Eleanor's problem. She acted against the precepts of the coven that she was invited into, not because she wanted to, but because she didn't think first. And as I've mentioned before, I think that's one of my problems. I don't think first, I act. So it was interesting for me to sort of see what i could do with that and try and help eleanor to control her impulses so there's a whole question of consequences both on the political plane but also on the personal plane she has to look she's given the mandate to look for a missing witch and she does she she goes all out to find the missing witch. good for her while stan is looking after is going on a treasure hunt and that would be what stan would do Um, so she's more (laughs) purposeful she has an interest in doing the right thing in helping. So good for her.
0: As you said earlier, you've been writing for quite a while. I just went through your short list of short stories and they go back quite a bit. Now you started off, as you said, in the literary. Do you find yourself wanting to return to that?
1: It's, it's actually a very good question, because. For the past couple of months, I've been asking, well, what about the literary stories, Karen? Where are they? (laughs) Um, I said, gee, I didn't mean to stop writing literary. My impulse is always now to go to dark fantasy in stories. It's a darker vision than you see in The Splendid City. That's where I tend to go. But I'm still interested in the literary world. I, I have an interest in how how we get meaning out of life, for instance, which is one of the hallmarks uh, for literary fiction. I'm also interested in words on the sentence level. Um, I'm interested in good metaphors. I love metaphors. I think everything's a metaphor. Um, It's an easy way to go through life if you just say everything's a metaphor. (laughs) So I'm still very much interested in the literary world. And I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if the next batch of stories are going to be more literary than fantasy science fiction because I do write science fiction as well and I enjoy it. It's a good question because it's the question I've been asking myself lately.
0: For your science fiction, do you find that easier to write than say your dark fantasy?
1: I think number one is dark fantasy, but science fiction, because it's an open world, you can create aliens, you can create situations. I tend to dive a little bit into almost parables when I write. I certainly reference, I use science fiction sometimes to reference. To reference the human condition, which is something that science fiction has always done, even though literary seems to dismiss it an awful lot, but science fiction deals with meaning on the human level and where you are in the universe and, and how you negotiate your way through the universe. I find it interesting to tackle those topics with some aliens confronting or being confronted by humans. And with that, I I tend to very often go into the settling of the United States and how the the Native Americans were treated. So I have stories, for instance, I'm having a senior moment with the name, uh, The Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury did that in The Martian Chronicles so successfully with some of the stories. So there are political things that I find I could only handle in science fiction because I don't have a key in my head to handling them in literary terms. So a lot of the things that I think about, worry about, are sorrowful about in terms of the way we live and how we treat our environment and how we treat some of our people. A lot of those things are easier to handle metaphorically in science fiction for me. And I can't imagine that I could do as much with literary fiction on that front as I feel I do with science fiction.
0: I find it gives you more to play with as a palette, science fiction, where literary is more narrow.
1: It's restricted. It's very restrictive, um, especially if you want to propose things. People can I mean, literary fiction has gotten a lot looser uh, than it was, say, in the 80s. In the 90s, it started twisting a bit. And they'd have, uh, I, always my reference for short stories is always The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Somehow or other. So there had been moments when The New Yorker really took a chance on stories that were not typical for them. And a lot, I'm seeing a lot more evidence that writers who are identified or self-identify as literary actually cross the border every so often, and even straight-faced fantasy science fiction sometimes crosses the border in the other direction. So I think it's a lot more open than it used to be. So there are still, of course, some state institutions, but something like the magazine Conjunctions, which is, has been for 30 years now, both literary and speculative, I think is a good illustration for me of how porous we are right now with genre. It's not perfect, but I think it's more open than it used to be. And I'm, of course, grateful for that.
0: Now, like you said, you've been writing for several years. Have you? How has the business changed, in your view, since you started writing?
1: I've always been a minor writer, so... <laughs> <laughs> So for me, it's the typical, oh, we love your work. We'll publish it. And then it doesn't sell. And then the next publisher looks at the sales and is not too happy with that. So I just keep going till I find another publisher. So my goal, no, I have to say that even though my goal in life is to sell a hell of a lot of copies and get reviewed once again in the Times, by the way, my first book in the 80s, a collection of short stories from a university press, actually got reviewed in the Times when they used to do small press summaries and they called me haunting and quirky. I bring that up as often as I can, by the way. This is my standard (laughs) anecdote. Uh, This is my entry into uh, first major publication. No, first publication being reviewed by a major reviewer. And I thought, oh, New York Times review, that's it, I'm in. And silence, utter silence after that. And that is an experience that I have learned to accept but still hope to bypass. And, you know, the straightforward angry robot uh, is a very good publisher. So I'm really hoping lots of good things will happen with this.
0: When you're writing a story, when you get an idea for a story and you start to plot it out, to visualize how it's going to go, do you know right away that it's going to be a short story or a novel, or does that kind of evolve as you, as you write?
1: This is actually a very big question. Number one, I usually start with either an image or an idea or something that interests me. I have no idea when I start where the story is going. It comes as I I write, so I don't know the ending. And like I think a lot of writers, the ending is the most difficult part for me. I've gone through stories all the way to the end and so that ending doesn't work and read done the ending five times until I get the one that I feel satisfied with. There's a shape to a story, even when you're just starting it and don't know what it is, there's a feel for how long it's going to be and what kind of story it's going to be. So all those things are, I would imagine, intuitive. On the other hand, twice now, I have started out with a story and then decided I'm going to make it into a novel. The one that I just finished actually started out as a a very uh, the darkest thing I've ever written. A very dark short story, which wasn't taken. I turned it into novella, which wasn't taken, and now I've just finished it as a novel. So that's twice now I've started with a story and then decided there is more to it, or there could be more to it, or I don't mind writing more. You know, in this in this particular world,
0: the idea, the plot just grabs you, and you just want to explore a bit more into yeah. it and to see, flesh it out more, and see where it goes. Yeah.
1: I've taught creative writing at NYU as an adjunct for a while. And one of the things I kept trying to tell people is don't ever have an idea how how long a story should be. You'll find out as you go along, there's a, a right length to it. And if you think magically, oh, Six thousand words is your typical storyline. You're really harming yourself because you're going to try and write to that length, whether it's a good length or not, and you may be inflating a story that should only be 1,200 words. So the f- the first bit of caution I try to instill in them is that let the story tell you how long it's going to be. Don't anticipate it. And don't try and write to a length. It's the word count is not that important. It's the story that's important. So, you know, just let it be.
0: I have that with chapters. I would start and only write. 5,000 words per chapter. Huh. And, and sometimes it would fall short. Sometimes it would be a little bit over. But just lately in the last few stories I've been writing, writing, I've just let it go. And it's the story will tell me when the chapter is done.
1: Yes. Yes. I think that's absolutely true for everyone. Although, as we both know, there are people who write in a way that is staggeringly <laughs> different <laughs> from the way that we write. And if it works for them, it works for them. That's fine. When I was teaching classes with beginning writers... You know, it was always, you give yourself rules that are the wrong rules. So for the moment, get rid of the rules and just do what feels right.
0: Now, teaching writing, has that crept into your stories or does that influence any of your writing?
1: I don't think so. It influences anecdotes that I tell people about teaching,
0: <laughs> but no. <laughs> because now- i I've been hearing uh, there's always been a thing I've been floating around the, the fringes of the publishing industry for about 10, 11 years now. And the one thing that always seems to come back over and over again is there are rules of writing or there are no rules of writing.
1: If you can break a rule, break it. Um, if you could do it successfully, then break it. I'm the the one that I just finished is actually deliberately breaking a big rule in writing, and I'm aware of it. I want to do it, and yes, I know some people are going to not like it because of that. But I get a certain amount of pleasure from the fact that I did break this rule, and it may never go anywhere, and that would be a shame. But for the time writing it, I was totally invested in it and I totally believed in it. And that's a good experience.
0: I always find that it's all right to break the rules or bend them as long as you know what they are in the first place and you understand what it is that you're about to break or bend.
1: Yes. Because even though I'm breaking the rules, I have to prepare the reader for that. Um, as I go along, I can't just suddenly do the thing that I want to do that's surprising. And uh, if I haven't prepped you in some way, you're just going to be startled and get up and make a cup of tea, you know, or something.
0: <laughs> when you were writing literary short stories, was there ever a story that gave you a piece of something for a different genre?
1: I don't think so, but because some of it is, is um, some of the issues in the literary stories certainly moved over into the fantasy, dark fantasy world. And these can be personal issues that only would matter to me. I'm the only one who would identify that what that actually refers to in science fiction or fantasy. So I would say that the literary was more and some of the themes in literary stories I've written were preps exercises for themes that I would develop in fantasy or science fiction. Nice. I didn't know it at the time, but some of them were leading me there.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much for spending some time with me tonight, Karen.
1: Thank you. It was delightful. And I love
0: the place you set me up in. It was. Oh, just- I know. That's just beautiful, <laughs> isn't it? It looks so warm there. I hope we can do this again. Maybe the next time you have a book coming out, we can hook up again and chat. I would really love to do that. Awesome. You have a good night. You too. Stay safe. Thank
1: you, Thank you so much, Dark. Bye-bye.
0: As a writer, it's difficult to not let the world influence your work. We absorb these influences for our creative process, but it comes with a price, and at times it can be overwhelming. Karen's experience with writing literary allows her to use these outside forces to tell a story that maybe, just maybe, can help us cope with the world around us. Thank you, listeners, for joining me tonight, and be sure to check out our website at www.strongwomenstrangeworlds.weebly.com for more strong women and other underrepresented gender identity authors. Good night.